This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one. With Nicole Claygid and Cooper Linton, here's the host of Aging Matters, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you here on News Radio 680 WPTF. This show is a service of Transitions Life Care. I'm Jason Kong. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Our uh, regular cast of characters is here. We've got Cooper Linton with Transitions Life Care. Cooper, how are you this evening? Like most evenings, thrilled to be anywhere, but I'm really happy to be here. Excellent. Well, glad to hear. We've got Nicole Cleggett as well. She is with Transitions Guiding Lights. Good evening to you, Nicole. Hey, I'm glad to be here, but I've got children starting to be out for the school year, and I think summer should be over soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> not that you're watching the calendar they're, or the They're clock. bored already. This is not a good sign of yeah. the nine more weeks to go. <laughs> well, we, we can put them to work. Just bring them here on I, Saturday I so. evenings, and I can, I, I can find something for them to do very easily, very uh, easily. You can send them out to my place. we got plenty of things they can work on. Now, I believe that. I believe that. Now, Cooper, uh, well, let's get down to business here. What, what's the uh, the topic at hand this evening? We like to talk about the uncomfortable things, and this is one of those uncomfortable discussions, and it really deals with dementia. Um, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's-related dementias, and we know that this is one of the fastest-growing disease sectors with our, within our entire health system. And I will say that, in my opinion, the one that we are least prepared to deal with from a long-term management perspective and really from a healthcare delivery perspective. Because this, these types of diseases, dementias, Alzheimer's-related dementias, do not fit into the same trajectory of care and treatment that so many other illnesses do. It's the one that's not like the others, or it's the group that's not like the others. And so we've brought a guest on today, Peggy Best, who is the Director of Programs and Outreach for the Alzheimer's Association of Eastern North Carolina, and they cover over half the state. Um, And Peggy, we're just glad you're on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the support. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the great work that's being done in North Carolina. There's a lot being done, and part of that is driven by research dollars. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we still do not have a cure for Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's-related dementias, and in all candor, we're not all that close to having one at the moment. Exactly. That's, you know, while we continue to strive to bring um, events that focus on research efforts and clinical strategies and talk about what's being done from an advocacy perspective, um, to find out or to reach the day when we have a cure or a prevention or something to slow the progression. I think we're in a really unique position being here in the Research Triangle Park area with all these amazing teaching hospitals for your organization to be positioned in such a way to be able to bring dollars in to support the local research here in this community. Exactly. We're very fortunate that since 1983 we've been able to funnel uh, the last time that I got information, at least close to about $10 million just to North Carolina wow. for research. That's a big number. So, that yeah. makes a difference. That's, a, that's a starting to make a difference number. I know. <laughs> that's, that's and you're great. right. We're actually in our background mm-hmm. or uh, our backyard, mm-hmm. excuse me. We have a phenomenal researchers and mm-hmm. people that are working in Alzheimer's and dementia just in our backyard. So coming up, there's an event. And that's really mm-hmm. why we wanted you to be here today, because Part of that research is actually going to be spoken about at an event coming up here on Friday, June 8th. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, this event is accelerating the pace, clinical strategies, research advances, and advocacy efforts in dementia and 
all kinds of types of dementia. This is going to be a full-day conference. It's going to focus on healthcare professionals. Um, we invite caregivers, members of our community affected by or living with Alzheimer's and a related disorder. But this new conference features some of the respected local researchers, healthcare professionals, and public policy advocates that are going to share their expertise on what they are doing in research and clinical strategies and also what we are doing to leading grassroots advocacy efforts to improve the lives of everyone living in North Carolina. So from that grassroots perspective, one of the session titles is What Can I Do to Protect Myself? And I believe that's uh, being presented uh, by Dr. Keith Fargo. Is that really targeted toward your lay audience? I believe that it is, and more or less, too, Dr. Fargo um, is also going to shed some light about the U.S. Pointer Study that is already being launched in June, and uh, the key investigative office is going to be housed in uh, Winston-Salem at Wake Forest. Uh, they have a Alzheimer's Disease Research Center there. Once again, North Carolina leading the way on research. Exactly. So one of the things that I know that family caregivers often talk about, uh, they are more scared of getting Alzheimer's or related dementia than basically any other disease because of the fact that once you have it, what can we really do? And so a question I often get when I'm giving presentations about Alzheimer's or dementia is truly, is there anything that I can do to, to help myself not get dementia? So I'm really excited to bring this title on because I think it's going to make a big difference and help people understand the myths versus the realities because there are a lot of myths out there and I often tell people you need to be really careful when you're googling you know what can I do to prevent dementia because there are millions and millions of sites out there with just one person's opinion and if they have some dollars behind it it might look like a really good opinion but it's still just an opinion so I'm hoping Mm -hmm. that he's going to actually talk to us about things that we can do in our lifestyles Mm -hmm. um, nutrition Issues, um, you know, maybe does, does that aluminum cavity uh, really cause <laughs> really cause dementia or not, or Teflon pans? I mean, you exactly. name it, you hear it, and so you know, sometimes just having an idea of what you can actually do makes a big difference to help allay some of those fears as well. Exactly. I mean, the thing that we're really excited about this is the first time this study has been done in the United States, and it's based on the finger study that was done in the Netherlands. But basically, they're going to look at the lifestyle interventions that together may target many risk factors that may protect cognitive decline. And so there were promising results out of the finger study that was done in the Netherlands, and they wanted to replicate this study here to see if a focus on diet and exercise and people with coexisting conditions, if they manage their lifestyle intervention, does that or can that potentially at least slow the progression or have some kind of effect on dementia? You also have another speaker uh, at this event, Dr. Grace Byfield, uh, and she is with North Carolina A&T. They've been doing some very interesting work for a number of years uh, through a group called COACH, which is the acronym for Center for Outreach in Alzheimer's Aging and Community Health. Uh, I understand why they use the acronym, mm-hmm. but there's and also a particular focus in that work, if I recall correctly, focused on... Um, the African-American population mm-hmm. and some minorities where we're seeing elevated risk or elevated probability mm-hmm. of having dementia. Exactly. Um, 
I'm glad that she is coming to speak. Can you talk a little bit about her presentation? Well, her presentation is going to take a look at what they are doing from a university uh, perspective and the research that they're doing. We do know that African-American population is two and a half times at risk of developing Alzheimer's or related dementia. You didn't say two and a half percent, did you? No. You said two and a half times. That's an order of change in probability, which honestly can be scary. To me, that's a scary shift. It is. And you know, the Hispanic Latino uh, community also is at one and a half times risk. And what they look at is the risk of the high incidence of high cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes. Back to diet and nutrition. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So um, another thing I'd love to highlight for just a second is really the role of public policy and advocacy. And I think sometimes people look at that and that's just a big, giant beast, right? And Mm -hmm. I don't know if I can make a difference. And gosh, why is that so important to the Alzheimer's Association? Well, one of our platforms is the fact that we are trying to raise awareness that this is a public health concern. Crisis. Exactly. You know, we need to look at the economic impact and the impact to our communities, not only in the rural, but the minority populations. Um, We have leading grassroots uh, efforts that are handled right here in North Carolina. Every year we do an annual visit down at our state legislative plaza to visit with our legislators and let them know this is what we were asked and what we are asking. And one of the largest platforms that we are really moving towards this year is the fact that we have found that people that advertise that they have memory care, what we want to do is we want to advocate that the training for people that provide direct one-on-one care has actual ongoing training. And actually, some states are stating that they want to show proof that there's certification of ongoing training. Peggy, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We really appreciate you having having you on the show. That's Peggy Best, the Director of Programs and Outreach for the Alzheimer's Association of Eastern North Carolina Chapter. And I want to remind everyone that you can find more information about the Accelerating the Pace event online at WPTF.com. Head over to the Aging Matters page. We've got a, a, a big graphic there that you can click on. It's got all the details. And if you click on that, you can register and find out about some of these uh, incredible uh, learning events and speakers that will be on display there a quick break and back you're listening to aging matters care and comfort that surrounds you a service of transitions life care on news radio 680 wptf this is aging matters care and comfort that surrounds you on news radio 680 wptf joined by nicole cleggett from transitions guiding lights and cooper linton from transitions life care Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. You can find more about Transitions Life Care at transitionslifecare.org. Jason Kong here with Cooper Linton and Nicole Cleggett. And Cooper, we... Uh, this is a recurring theme on the program here, but we, we always tend to take a look and analyze some of the underserved areas of our community, and uh, it sounds like we're going to take a, a, another a crack at that here right now. Well, we, we make a point of trying to bring up things that are not getting the airtime that we think that they should, whether it's a disease, whether it's financial issues, whether it's caregiving issues, or people that are not getting the attention or have historically not gotten the attention within the healthcare systems um, that we've feel like that they need in order to live out the healthiest, best quality life that we all actually desire. And we live in an area that affords us that uh, largely in the triangle. So to that end, we have brought two guests in today. 
Uh, one is Joseph Wheeler. He is the coordinator for Sage Raleigh. It's a program of the LGBT Center of Raleigh, and that focuses on people that are 50 years of age and older. And a colleague of his is also joining us, Ann Art, who is the co-chair of, edu- of the Education Committee for Sage Raleigh as well. So welcome, uh, Ann and Joseph. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, Cooper. Thank you. Appreciate you giving your Saturday evening to us for this. Um, so can we just start with what is Sage or who is Sage? SAGE is really a part of SAGE USA, which is a national organization, and it is for people 50 and older, and it really focuses on socialization because we know isolation is a huge issue, not only for everyone as we get older, but more so for LGBTQ individuals. Also education because we are aware of there are lots of issues that the community at large needs to know, and also advocacy because things are changing all the time about LGBTQ rights. So that's our focus. From a public policy perspective, Mm -hmm. there's been some massive changes just in the last five years. Absolutely. Even tonight as we talk. Right. (laughs) There are always things happening. And Joseph, how long have you been involved with SAGE? I've been involved with SAGE since 2012. And uh, I came to an event at the LGBT Center, uh, uh, our annual uh, gala. And uh, because of friends of mine who were involved, I started uh, participating and have joined the SAGE Planning Committee and a year ago stepped into the role of coordinator. So for those who have never pondered why, why is it that aging can be tougher on the LGBTQ community? When we think about getting older, a lot of the issues are very much the same. But for someone in the, let's say, 50, 60, 70 age bracket, um, we grew up at a time when being lesbian, being gay, being transgender was really marginalized. It was considered a psychiatric diagnosis. Um, it was considered a sin. It was considered intensely. And, and we grew up having to stay in the closet. And by that, I mean not letting people know about up that part of our who we are. It has changed over the years, but for people in that older age bracket, those memories are still there. And so while they may have become more open as they have grown older, the tendency as they get older, those fears of discrimination, rejection, um, not receiving services that, you know, that we really expect and really need, um, it causes people to go back into the closet to not let people know. Um, and so that's one of the issues that older people really face a lot of. Plus, our lives have just been totally different So I think one of the things, too, and my background is a geriatric social worker. I've worked in long-term care for over 20 years. Um, One of the things that I noticed uh, often when we brought in people into some of the long-term care communities, and 20 years ago it was a lot different than it is today, but a lot of them didn't have children. And so they were kind of facing aging alone with perhaps their partner wasn't alive anymore and no caregiver support around them. Talk to us a little bit about that and the challenges that that creates. Well, one of the things that we know is that um, twice as many LGBTQ people live alone as people who are non-LGBTQ. We also know that uh, uh, our folks are three to four times less likely to have children, which means that as we age, because we know that, that children are often the family caregivers, the informal caregivers, that um, Our caregiving networks tend to be what I call horizontal as opposed to vertical. And as we 
age and we're 65. Our potential caregivers are also generally around 65. But when we get to be 85, our closest network is often that same age. And so that presents challenges. Well, you don't have a multi-generational here. You have a peer group. So I think that's your point. But you just used a statistic that I'd like to hear again. Did you say that there are three to four times less less likely? I mean, that's a massive difference. Especially in our age group. Absolutely. It's a massive difference. I think that's probably shifting some in the younger population. But the younger population is nowhere close at this point to dealing with some of the elder care issues and the aging issues. Uh, They may be in a caregiver role, uh, but that also then creates some challenges for them. Yes. And one of the things about our generation is we've been through the Stonewall Rebellion. Mm -hmm. We've been through... Uh, don't ask, don't tell. We've been through the HIV epidemic, and as such, we often have formed our networks around other LGBTQ people. And what happens as we age is if, for example, we lose our mobility or we go into a congregate housing, we can lose contact and connection with the people who have provided us support, and we are in environments where we may not see other LGBTQ people as residents in our congregate housing, as people on staff, et cetera. And it's easy for our folks to become isolated. And we may not feel comfortable having our friends come into that congregate housing to visit. Right, mm-hmm. right. So another thing that I've also um, been made aware of through a recent study by AARP is that there is a lot of financial insecurity with this population versus other groups. What's the reasoning behind that? Has there been kind of an exploration as to why that is? I think some of it comes to the fact that um, because so many of the LGBT community lives by themselves, they may have um, not had the benefit of a marriage or a shared partnership where income then has been shared. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Tax benefits even. Absolutely. (laughs) Inheritance benefits, all of those things. Um, And also the fact that... um, Many times they have had marginalized jobs because of that discrimination about who they are. They may not have been able to have more financially secure jobs. They may have changed jobs or they may have been fearful for um, losing that economic status that they may have had. So that has a lot to do with it. And uh, go ahead, Joseph. It seems like you got something there. Well, I I was going to say that particularly for people who are transgender, uh, the um, National Center for Transgender Equality did a survey a few years ago, and one of the things they found is that people who identify as transgender are four times more likely to have a household income of under $10,000 than the non-transgender population. And I admit I'm I'm the numbers geek in the room to some extent. When we talk about changes in health care at 2 and 3 and 4 percent, our health care system flinches at anything at 2 and 3 percent. You're talking 3 and 4 hundred yes, percent. And I think just understanding that scale may help people understand the impact of this. Now, there's another issue, and I know we're, we're short on time in this segment, but a lot of this is that our health care system has not been trained to be aware, to be sensitive, uh, even to drop unintended biases toward the LGBTQ community. And it's a, it's a problem within our own industry. I think you know, it's one of the things, as, as being the co-chair of the Education Committee, that's one of the emphasis that we have is we need to go out in the community. We need to be educating people in the community. We need to educate long-term care facilities, for example, health care providers, to know 
how do we make ourselves feel more open, number one? How do we ask questions that are open to anybody <clears throat> rather than saying, <clears throat> excuse me, rather than saying, are you married? That closes the door to a lot of people, whether whether they're LGBTQ or not. It's, it closes the door. So how do we ask questions that are a little bit more open? Tell us who's who are the important people in your life. Tell us about your relationship. And some good things are happening. I know that at Duke Med School, I know at UNC Med School, they are including sexual orientation and gender identity education for uh, in, in their medical school courses. So we're seeing people be more aware. One statistic that I think is important is that 40% of LGBTQ elders have said they, ha- they have not told their primary physician of their sexual orientation. We've got Joseph Wheeler and Ann Art here in the studio. They are both with Sage Raleigh, and we will continue our conversation here in just a bit and also tell you about an event that is happening here locally. We'll get into that in just a bit. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. Joined by Nicole Claygate from Transitions Guiding Lights and Cooper Linton from Transitions Life Care, here's your host, Jason Kong. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett and Cooper Linton. We also have two special guests here in the studio. We've got Joseph Wheeler and Ann Art there, both with Sage Raleigh and Cooper. We uh, we had to go to break there for a little bit, but there's uh, something that you wanted to pick up on before we uh, took a break there. Well, we um, we took a break, but we need to come back to picking up some of those topics. And we were beginning to explore some of the issues related to education uh, within the healthcare systems healthcare providers and how that relates to access and why there may be different needs for that access. And uh, Joseph was talking about the education going on at uh, some of the academic medical centers. We know that some of the healthcare providers, actually a fair number of them, are realizing that they need to upskill their workforce to better understand how to engage with the LBGTQ community. Uh, and frankly, some of them just need to know what that means. And I, can you just kind of throw some broad suggestions into that? What what types of things are healthcare organizations looking at, and why does that matter? So one of the things we know is that the intake process is important that people use. What's an intake process? <laughs> when people are filling out their forms, when they're answering questions, when they're being interviewed, whether it be for congregate housing or for health services, um, for admission to care. Exactly. It's really about whether it's admission to a hospital, yes. admission to a nursing facility, home health services, home care services, hospices, um, even understanding what kind of paperwork you need on file with your medical provider. Yes. And it can be as simple as making sure that people are not making assumptions about uh, gender identity, people are not making assumptions around relationships, that they're using words like uh, spouse or partner as opposed to husband or wife. So, for example, uh, my husband and I, he's been in the healthcare system, and he's older than I am. And when he went into rehab within the first 24 hours, I was asked four times if I was his son. Mm-hmm. 
because the people didn't have a framework for how we related to one another as spouses. That may have been a safer question to ask in the mind of someone. And, and the safest question is, and what's your relationship to the person who's in rehab? So we have to train people yes. to the, know what that is. The, the other thing we hear a lot is, we don't have any LGBTQ people in our facility. Really? And uh, we hear that a lot. That's and, an unusual facility, then. Uh, it would be a very unusual <laughs> facility. Uh, if you have a 1,000 people come through your doors, then the estimate in North Carolina is that about 4% of them uh, would be LGBTQ identified. So I'd like to take us down a path, and it's much more of a, of a heart-of-the-matter path. Um, so let's talk about end-of-life. Um, I have worked, and I know, Anne, you have worked in end-of-life care for quite some time, and um, I think... Families sometimes perhaps suspect that an older loved one may have been a LGBTQ at some point in their lives. It's just never been spoken about, right? It's just always been very private. Um, and then a person sort of enters end of life, and there's that life review process, and families may receive some information about that loved one and that very dear friend that they have that they may or may not be emotionally prepared to. How would you recommend you know, a family member who has a loved one who's facing end of life that may receive some of that information? How should they respond to help that person really feel like they were um, – accepted, you know, with, with all the information. It's very similar to you know, how we handle with veterans, you know, when they tell us some of the atrocities they faced in war, any, anything that's gone on in life that people bury deep. How would you expect a family uh, should receive that? I think one of the most important things is just encourage them to tell their story, mm-hmm. non-judgmentally. Look at how you react. Body language says a lot. Your tone of voice says a lot. Um, not like, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That can really kind of shut the door, but exactly. tell me, you know, tell me a little more. I, I didn't know this about you. Tell me a little bit more about it. I'd like to, you know, I'd like to know what's been going on in your life, and kind of that openness of getting them to talk more about it. And and it may be, as we as professionals often have to do, put aside our own personal feelings mm-hmm. to be connect and listening be to present mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. definitely you know um, 20 years ago versus today I, I even see um, and obviously there are still issues and I'm not saying that there are not but I think sometimes people come out to some of their very direct personal care providers before they've even told family members and I, what I've seen is that a lot of times there's much more of an openness now where 20 years ago there was just you know, kind of like whispers and people talking about the situation afterwards and so I'm, I'm actually I feel quite warm about the fact that you know, people are much more open to hearing what people have to say towards end of life because it's so important. I think it's true. I think we have a long way to go still. I think that whole idea of, of because we react, when we react to someone telling us something, our first reaction is our gut level reaction, which is a reflection of our, our old beliefs and our old values and our own ideas and being able to put that aside for a moment. I think that's true with the, with the um, employees and facilities and things like that. You know, encouraging them. I think what Joseph was saying in, in his personal experience was, if if a, if one person in that facility finds out some valuable information, whatever that may be, they need to make sure that other employees in the facility know the same thing. So you don't have to go through answering that same question again or having to say, "No, I'm not his son. He's my husband." Um, so I think that that communication internally is really important as well. Well, I think there's a little bit of a misconception out there because we've now legalized same-sex marriage, which has assisted with some of the issues that previously you needed. You needed to have a health care power of attorney. 
in order to do decision making. It, it smoothed that over because there's now a legal status. However, it's almost too easy to say, okay, now that problem is solved. In reality, there's still a bias within the treatment within the system. Yes, we have addressed a legal issue, but we have not addressed the social context for care. Um, and, and could you speak to that a little bit? Well, um, in 31 states, in the United States, there are no civil rights protections for LGBTQ people. A lot of people think we have federal protection, and we don't. Protection, civil rights protection is only granted by states or municipalities. And so a lot of us live in environments where, uh, where we know that we do not enjoy the same civil rights protections as other people. And, and again, you, you talk about how that creates a social context. So you guys are putting together an event. You're actually not putting it. You've already put together an event that's coming up very soon that is specific to the unique health needs of the aging population that is served through SAGE. Can, you, can we speak to that? Please, can you guys talk about that event? Because I think it's important. Yeah, we're having um, a, a Triangle Expo for LGBTQ aging seniors that's coming up on June 23rd. And our purpose really is to bring together members of the LGBT community, their families, their friends, and the service providers. We really, they really need to get to know each other. And members of the LGBTQ aging community need to know, this is a place where I'm going to feel safe, because they don't know that up front. And you have an amazing underwriting sponsor. We have 13 sponsors that have made this available. Congratulations. We are, That's a big that is it. We know. We put on deal. conferences. <laughs> and we are most pleased that American Airlines is our presenting sponsor. That's awesome. That's enormous. So it can is. you give us an idea of some of the sessions that will be presented that day? Sure. Well, uh, we have 10 education sessions, including things like financial planning, mental health issues, uh, we have a program around... We have advanced care directors, which are really important when we're talking about end-of-life mm-hmm. issues. We have people talking about how to maintain a healthy lifestyle, nutrition, um, exercise, that kind of thing. Um, so we've tried to incorporate lots of different areas because this is the first one we're doing. So trying to touch on lots of different topics that may be of interest to people. Um, when they are aging. But we also have a Qigong class. We oh, have that's, that's awesome. Yes, we have a balance class that's going to be uh, uh, done by the YMCA, and we have a dance class. And we have over 40 exhibitors in our expo, so people will have a chance to talk one-on-one with many different service providers and organizations. So just a quick question, um, and I just don't want to make any assumptions, but could anybody attend this uh, this this summit, yes. While the okay. focus is on people who are LGBTQ, mm-hmm. it also includes our families, our friends, well, our caregivers, thinking, yeah. and anyone. That's awesome. That's awesome. And the cost? Is absolutely free. Wow. Wait, 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 wait. You're putting this whole thing on and it's free to the general public? That's why we appreciate our sponsors who make this possible and each of the exhibitors that have come in, uh, and joined the, the crowd. Just... Joseph Wheeler and Ann Art, thank you both so much for coming in this evening. We really appreciate you taking some time here to have a discussion with us. Thank you. Thank you. That is, again, Joseph Wheeler and Ann Art with Sage Raleigh. You can find more information online at lgbtcenteroforalee.com. That's lgbtcenteroforalee.com.
Com. A quick break and back. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. With your co hosts, Nicole Claykitt and Cooper Linton. Here's the host of Aging Matters, Jason Kong. News Radio 680 WPTF, you're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. You can find more about Transitions Life Care at transitionslifecare.org. Nicole Cleggett and Cooper Linton alongside me, Jason Kong, and Cooper and Nicole. Many, many events coming up. So uh, We're party people. We are. <laughs> well, we're guys, conference people. I don't know if these are parties. There's always a party at a conference. Yeah, you just have to true. find it. If you two are there, it's a party. That's, that's what I say. <laughs> All right. We're going to go with that. I think one of the beautiful things about this, though, is we live in a part of the country where there is an abundance of opportunities to learn about issues that are actually relevant to our lives and the way we're living and the way around the people we love are living. Um. And we do have several conferences, one of which our guests covered just a few minutes ago, um, which is the Accelerating the Pace Conference, which is on June 8th. That's Friday. Uh, and that's going to be held in Cary. Uh, and that is the one that's related to Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's-related dementias and is being uh, put together through the relationship with the Alzheimer's Association, Wake AHEC, Transitions Life Care, and MetLife. Uh, great researchers, a lot of um, public policy issues being addressed, and really also issues for the lay audience as well. Then we also have upcoming the Triangle Expo for LGBTQ for Aging Adults, and that's going to be on June 23rd. And that is going to be at the Five Points Senior Center in Raleigh, actually, and as uh Amazing because I know what it takes to make this happen. It, there's no charge. Yeah. And so, you know, this is a wonderful opportunity, I think, for folks who are a part of that community, have loved ones that are in that community, maybe are just curious on how to better serve that community. I think this would be a great place for folks to attend and um, kind of learn about what's relevant to the LGBTQ population for sure. I think it's important that we don't assume that we know. Um, and part of what I have learned working with uh, SAGE and the LGBTQ uh, group is that there were some assumptions I had about healthcare delivery and healthcare engagement and kind of the overall social context that I was wrong about. Uh, and I think it's important that we're kind of open to hearing that and then open to learning something different. And this is a great educational opportunity to do that. Let the record reflect. He has admitted he's been wrong on at least one occasion. Oh, I was wrong before breakfast. You can ask my wife. <laughs> She's right, by the way. We'll get you a, a clip of that, Nicole, and you can use that. Well, you for... know, I always knew he just wasn't right, but mm-hmm. now I know he's wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're cutting a clip of that, would you mind sending one to my wife? That would be, that would be great. I've already sent her a few of those. <laughs> Thanks, She Jason. can add to the collection. We also have another very large event uh, coming up, and that's on June 14th. And it's really the first time we've ever hosted a caregiver summit at the Sheraton Imperial, which is off of Page Road. Uh, it is in Durham, but it is incredibly accessible, really, to all areas of the Triangle and those counties outside of the Triangle. It's one of the most accessible locations that we could find, and that's actually why it's there. 
Yeah, super excited about that. Registrations are up so high this year. and um, But room for more. We definitely have room for more. Um, we almost have limitless space, I dare to even say, because it's such a huge venue. But very excited about you know our content. And you know we've been pushing this for, for months now. But definitely go to the uh, Caregivers Summit website to check out more information. I know that's also listed on the Aging Matter page of the WPTF website. But I kind of want to... And I'm going to put Cooper on the spot here. Mm, thanks, Nicole. <laughs> I kind of want to talk a little bit about something that really overlaps, I think, probably all of these summits in, in, in many ways, um, is really that journey of that family caregiver. And, you know, what puts you in the position of being a family caregiver? It's probably caring for a loved one who has some sort of a chronic illness. It may be Alzheimer's. It could be. Um, cancer, it could be any 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 number of things. I'm working with a caregiver whose loved one is 35 who has ALS. But really, you know, when you get a diagnosis that is going to have a downhill trajectory, how do we still find hope? How do we find hope when we know there really isn't a cure? Well, I think part of that is just acknowledging what you just said. You know, there we can hope for a lot of things, and we, we get sometimes unrealistically hung up in the idea that we're going to hope for a cure for whatever. And we have cured certain illnesses. We, Nobody listening to this show can name a single person that has died of polio in their lifetime, most likely, unless they're a very old listener, mm-hmm. um, experienced listener. I didn't mean to offend anybody <laughs> out there. We've cured some things, or we've found ways to stop disease progressions. And we've, we've even done shows uh, here about the chronic nature of cancer now that we've become more adept at addressing certain types of cancer care. At the same time, whether it's dementia, whether it's cancer, kidney disease, heart disease, any kind of organ failure, neurological breakdowns, what we have found is there's this common trajectory of mortality. And we can have hope for cure, but I think we also have to shift to hope for healing because we haven't cured mortality. And so we may find a way to beat leukemia, but we will not find a way to overcome the human condition. In one way or another, we're going to deal with the decline of our bodies and the decline of the bodies of the people that we love. And so how do we weave hope into that conversation? And what are we hoping for? Uh, and for some people, that's a spiritual journey for other people it's more a relational journey and for most folks it's both candidly Mm -hmm. and how do you process the anticipatory loss of realizing that every time we lose somebody around us we're reminded that we're at some point going to lose our own selves Uh, and so when we talk about that healing process we also look at how do we get help in that healing Mm -hmm. process and setting goals for ourselves and we say, well, goals, I want to run a marathon. Let me be clear, by the way. I have no intention of running a marathon. That's not one of the goals. I'm really talking about goals of what do we want to have out of our life? What do we want to have out of our relationships? And when we talk with patients and we talk with families, they don't start talking about money. They don't start talking about degrees or professional achievements. They start talking about the people that they care about and the people they love. And that's really one of those key steps in that healing process. 
is recognizing that and then what's standing between where you are today and achieving those goals of healing with your loved ones. And there can be a lot of things. It could be, you know, unspoken challenges with family members, unresolved conflicts, untold stories. I mean, we even addressed some of that earlier with the LGBTQ group that they're folks that have not shared uh, their whole self, their whole self with their family members. And that's been a barrier. And I think, you know, you know, obviously a focus needs to be on that individual going through that disease progression, but there is a circle of a family around them. And, you know, the families are, while maybe not on the same path exactly, they're on a similar journey together. And it's so concurrent. It is. It is. And, you know, being a family caregiver a couple of times myself, and you've done this twice, you know, there are very real and raw moments that come with that and, and really a true process of grief as you experience this with a loved one. And frankly, caregiving is is very disruptive. It's disruptive to your personal life. It's disruptive to your professional life. It's disruptive to all things that feed your soul. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people have very private thoughts of resentment and anger related to why did this happen, have to happen to my loved one? And, and frankly, why is this happening to me right now? We had all these plans. This was our dream. We had this great idea of what retirement was going to be like. And now my husband has ALS or Parkinson's or dementia. And so I think before you can get to that next step of hope and healing, you need to get through those pieces of anger. Well, as, as I heard from a close family member who was facing some uh, terminal challenges in their own health care, stepped back and said, uh, and, and probably in, in language I'm not going to repeat on the air, <laughs> but I will give you the context for it, what's so golden about these golden years? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are golden moments within them. But some of these diseases, and dementia, for example, is one of them, it gets really hard to find some of those golden spots. And I think people who are tr- kind of traveling this journey with their loved ones have an opportunity through these three conferences that are coming up to find people who are on similar paths with them, to find some common ground, realize they're not alone, and also find some resources that may make this journey a little easier. And I think a big piece of this is forgiveness, forgiving yourself, too, for having some of these feelings, because without that, you can't move forward. And again, it, it's a very real, raw journey, whether it's dementia, whether it's LGBTQ community facing you know, their orientation and the fact they've had to hide it, plus maybe even having a dementia. Um, it, it really doesn't matter what you're facing. The path is very similar for, I think, most people. Yeah, and I think the hard part is sort of uh, taking yourself out of that sort of spiral where you know you, you you just mentally you need to realize that again you're you're not alone. And I think the caregiver summits are a great way to sort of break yourself out of that cycle and to see that you know there are other people going through similar things and there's support available for you. Caregiversummit.org is the website. You can also head over to wptf.com in the aging matters section. We've got plenty of information about the caregiver summits there. I want to thank our Guests again this evening, Peggy Best with the uh, Alzheimer's Association of Eastern North Carolina chapter, and Joe Wheeler and uh, Ann Art with Sage Raleigh. Thank you so much for listening. We are out of time for this evening, but we hope you'll join us again next week for Aging Matters, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. For more information, log on transitionslifecare.org.